We will now read together from Psalm 8 as we have it in the text of Scripture. Psalm 8. And as part of inspired text, we have the superscription above it. Psalm 8, to the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Amen. Amen. So we're moving along to Psalm 8. And we examine, as we usually uh, must do, uh, the superscription as well, as I've mentioned, it is part of inspired, the inspired Hebrew text. Uh, and in the his inspired Hebrew text, it forms either part of or completely verse 1. Um, the authorised translators have set it above because it is a superscription, it is a, a title, it has information in it, uh, but not part of the, the song, the poem, the psalm proper. So to the chief musician upon Gittith, the psalm of David. Well, what is this Gittith? There are three other, there are two other uh, psalms that speak of a Gittith. And of course, as it comes to understanding terms which are, in in our case, you know, more than, well, 3,000 years old, uh, Hebrew terms that may not have been very clear to everybody, you couldn't walk on the street these days and say, hey, could you tell me what mezzo forte means? I and mean, people wouldn't have a clue that it's a musical term, meaning, you know, middling volume, middle strong. Uh, people wouldn't have a clue. And so here we are, you know, the, the product of, of, of many different cultures, but certainly not the Hebrew culture, being declared what the gittith is. And we have no... A clear idea. There are different understandings of it. A very clear one is that the Gittith is translated in other translations, and I believe in the Latin and in the Greek, as a liar. A liar, L-Y-R-E. Now, a liar is what we often think of when we think of David and his harp. 
is a, is a lyre. It's a sort of like a U-shaped instrument with a crossbar and the strings uh, go down from it. A very small harp, in a way. And that's what a, and that's what a, a lyre is, and it is, a th- it is understood or thought that this is what this, this is what this gitith is. And interestingly, the lyre was used by many ancient peoples, if you know your uh, Homeric history, if you know anything about the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, uh, so epic Greek stories uh, going back to about the same time as the Psalms, are a little bit younger. Uh, again, that would be something that Homer would have used. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a simple lyre um, to accompany the singing of the song or the epic poem or whatever it might have been. And that's where we get the term for the words. Lyrics come from the word lyre. So the, the lyrics would be spoken, sung by the, by the bard. And that would give us a, an example of David himself, especially when he was still a shepherd boy using a lyre. There is a word that's similar to gittith, and it's thought that it might be related to a word on the wine press. A wine press was similar. Gethsemane is a geth is a press. Um, so an oil press would be Gethsemane, the Geth Shemen. Um, again, so it's a place for pressing, and you think, well, that might be a, a, a name of a tune. Uh, another possibility as the gittith comes from the word gath. So it may, to, it may have been an instrument of gath or a lyre from gath. You know, gath is one of the Philistine cities in the southwest of the Holy Land. So that's what that word gittith is. Um, Psalms 83 and another one use, use that term as well. Again, these musical terms, uh, sometimes helpful, sometimes that's just the background of it. Very much the background to the word psalm as well, as well. Um, because the psalm, the word psalm is a Greek word that talks about singing to a plucked instrument. So we we have that here. But of course, psalm is a Greek word. The word is mizmor in the in the Hebrew, and that merely means that you singing a tune with words. That's all it means. A melody with words. So it's not an instrumental. It's not a, a spoken thing. It's it's words with melody. So we've had a look at something of what is there. It's a psalm of David, a mizmor of David. And then we come into the body of the, of the psalm itself. Uh, the title of this um, study this evening, and I hope we'll understand why uh, I've called it this, is Christ humbled to save sinful man. Christ humbled to save sinful man. But we begin, and there are two main points to what we're looking at this evening. The first point of Christ humbled to save sinful man is God's glorious reputation as creator. God's glorious reputation as creator. Because we see something in the very first verse that speaks of his reputation, his name. His name, firstly, then, in his reputation. The name is given there. We see, O Lord, our Lord, And as we know, that word Lord there in capital letters is almost always one or two exceptions for other reasons. But when we read the, the, the scriptures, Lord in, in, in capitals, all in capitals, speaks of the covenantal name. There are lots of ways of describing it. I'm not going to go into technical detail, and certainly not in the same details we did in the Young Adults Fellowship last year sometime. Um, but the name uh, Jehovah. 
which in the Hebrew is Yehovah, Yehovah or Yehovah. And this is the name of God. This is the name that we have. Uh, Yahweh or Yahweh does not exist in the scriptures. Uh, it is Yehovah, and Yehovah itself is made of three forms. And all three parts of that word, the Yer and the Ho and the Wa, are really pointing to who God is. It speaks of his eternality. And if you were to go to Revelation 1, it translates Jehovah for you. It says, uh, he who was and is and who shall come is a translation of these three forms of the Hebrew verb to be. So, uh, he who was and who shall be and who is. If I can remember the exact order of Jehovah. So here we have, this is the, 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 the one true and living God, Jehovah. Um, three parts to his name, three persons in the one Godhead. Uh, no doubt there is some relationship there as well. But he's called, O Lord, our Lord. And you see that the second word, Lord, is not in capitals. So if we read it as, O Lord, our Lord, uh, we might miss out on the depth. Jehovah is our Lord. That second Lord is the word Adon. You may have heard of Adonai. Uh, this, this is a, a, a simpler form of Adon. Um, Adon meaning Lord, meaning master, owner, proprietor, governor, even, even could be used of a king, also used of a husband. It's amazing that that word Adon has so many theological truths, gospel truths, about God's relationship to his people in it. But it is, it's true. So we have Jehovah, our Lord. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. His name is, is excellent. So we, we, we've seen the name Jehovah. We see a, a title, Adon, uh, meaning um, those things I've mentioned, especially the idea of master, and uh, even, 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 as I said, husband. Uh, you might know from uh, the New Testament uh, that it says that uh, Sarah, Sarah was so sub, uh, submitted to her husband that she even called him Lord. Well, that's the word that she called him. Adon, she called him Lord, as in, as in a husband that has headship over me. And so that is part of the honor. That's part of the, 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 the glory that is due to God. And, and when, when, when the Hebrews use the word name, they, they mean reputation. They're not just talking about the tag that's attached to you that says, that says uh, Bill or Tony or whatever it might be. It's, it, it's, it's t your titles, your attributes, your, your status, your relationship, your works, who you are, is all bound up in this idea of name. Um, and so we have the name of God. And it's one of the things that the Hebrews will, the, 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 the Jews still do. They won't, they won't use the name Jehovah even though they're commanded to use it, just not abuse it. Uh, but they want to be hyper-religious and know better than the scriptures. It's always a danger to be hyper-spiritual. Um, uh, but the Lord says don't, it, the Lord does never say do not use it, but we are not to take it in vain. But the name Jehovah they won't use, so they use different other things. They'll have, they'll use Elohim, um, uh, meaning God. Uh, or they'll use Hashem, which means the name. So that's what we have written here in the Hebrew then. And they'll use that. But that word name, again, it's not just that tag. It's, it means so much more. And that's what he's building out to be. How excellent is thy name? How is thy reputation? How is thy glory and thy works? 
in all the earth, looking around uh, the beauties of the earth, the creation and the, the glories. But having, talked, having spoken about the earth, he's immediately uh, glancing up, as it were, to the heavens and says, Who has set uh, thy work, um, thy glory, sorry, above the heavens. So not even just in the heavens, although he does make mention of the heavens, but above the heavens. So he's, he's talking about the glory of God that's in the heaven of heavens, the third heavens, not the sky, not the universe with this black backdrop, but behind that where the spiritual abode of the angels and the heavenly creatures and the souls of saved men abide with God until the return of Christ. And all of this is what he's saying is that it's excellent. The name and the reputation and the glory and the works on earth and in heaven are glorious. They are excellent. And that word excellent uh, has the idea also of the word majestic. Majestic is the name of the Lord. So majestic is his name, but majestic, immediately moving on then, are his works. Because we can well imagine that the psalmist is maybe at night time. And when we look at this, and we look at the context, uh, there's nothing here that would even suggest that he's a king. There's nothing that suggests that he's not a king at the time. As we're able to pick out little hints here and there in other places of the Psalms that we've looked at already that are clearly of Davidic authorship, that David composed. But here, this could be any time in his life. could be when he's a shepherd boy. could be any time that he seems to be clearly looking up at night. But he, he, before we get into those details of, of, of that night sky as he's meditating on that, as he's considering this, so the glory in the earth, the glory uh, in the heaven of heavens. But then he comes down to the smallest thing uh, before he moves on to the heaven of heavens. Uh, and that is his people. His people. Because he now enters on the proof of the subject which he had undertaken to discourse upon, Calvin says. It says that the providence of God in order to make itself known to mankind does not wait till men arrive at the age of maturity, but even from the very dawn of infancy shines forth so brightly as is sufficient to confute all the ungodly, who through their profane contempt of God would wish to extinguish, extinguish his very name. Because he now goes on to verse 2 and says, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting that when we talk about the witness of, or he's talking about the witness of creation, and he comes down then to human witness, that he, he then speaks of babes. He hasn't talked about human orators. Think of the great rhetoricians in the past of, 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 of ancient times, of the classical Greeks and the Romans, Cicero, um, great speech makers and writers and philosophers and those that were able to, to convince and convey or even preach, if you're thinking of the Christian church, even those great preachers, John Chrysostom uh, of Damascus and even all the way up to to Spurgeon and, and so forth. But babes are not eloquent in their language. Babes don't have much of a language. 
And yet they are mentioned here as speaking loudly and eloquently about God's creative power. Out of the mouths and babes and sucklings. And if we think about the creative and the wonderful power, that's something that every expectant parent and every actual parent knows full well. Because although not technically a miracle, the birth of a child, we must admit it is a wonder. It's a wonderful thing to be a wonderful thing to experience a child uh, being born. And it is, of course, when we receive a child from the Lord, it is it is a, a, a great reason to give much thanks to the Lord for that new life. Uh, there are some that know of this recent uh, in recent past. But here we have that. And contrary to the wickedness of atheist mankind, as, 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 as Calvin was saying, David is not bringing in the armies of man or the glories of man or the wisdom of man to, to, to come and refute. He just says, look at this newborn babe. Look at this young child. Look at this, this child, that's, this infant that's still on its mother's uh, breast. I will just add this. What is said is of the ancient Hebrews is that children as old as seven might still be fed in that way. And so when we're thinking of the sucklings mouths, we might, we might thinking of, of six months or eight months or a year or, you know, uh, you know heaven forbid, as, as regarding the philosophies of the modern world, it would be as long as 18 months. Uh, but the ancients would have done it uh, much longer. So he's just bringing the simple wonder of new life, uh, and that is a baby. Because man knows full well how to sin and to kill and destroy but God, on the contrary, is the only giver of new life. He's the only giver of, of any life, and he continues to bring new life on earth, but especially into the church. I think we can consider here, uh, as he says, O Lord, our Lord. Yes, you could be very broad about this, but I think he's talking about Jehovah being our master, our husband, our Governor, our owner, that is the people of God. And so God continues to bring new life into the church, and the people of God are still blessed even to this day by additions to their number, whether it be by physical additions, by the physical birth of new children. But we can also take it up, uh, take it up a level, or we could compare it side by side with spiritual birth out of the mouths of babes, of spiritual babes and sucklings. Thou hast ordained strength. So the rebirth of sinners, with their with their simple prayers and with their simple confession of faith and their changed lives, having been dead, shall we say, in the womb of trespasses and sins, but having been brought to new life by the rebirth. And so, by the word of their profession, by the word of God, they are able to confound and defeat the enemies, maybe within their family or at work, who would then turn around and try to contradict them. But they can't because of the power of the gospel that's visible in their own lives. And indeed, this a childlikeness is something that is to be a mark of all those who are truly born again. Not childishness, of course, but childlikeness. The Lord says this in Matthew 8 and verse 3, and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So they're to be as humble and as teachable and as trusting as little children with God as their Lord 
teaching them, reproving them, helping them. And that's what Christ was like in his earthly ministry. When Christ came to those that, were, that, that, were, that needed help, that needed uh, the gospel, that needed even physically feeding at times, they, he was a gentle teacher to those willing to be taught. To be taught by this, this rabbi, this man of Nazareth, whom they only through the eyes of faith would understand to also be uh, their saviour and as the scriptures would reveal also their creator. But we know that Christ also was a stern rebuker of, of the religious hypocrite, of the enemies of the gospel and those who were the enemies of his people. Christ being both a king and a prophet at those moments. And therefore, as we see here, the Lord stopped or stilled the mouths of the enemies. And even as that word still, and we would understand that, to, to, to make silence. Uh, according to Calvin, that word can also be used to be put to flight. So the idea is, is, is that if your enemy is sort of coming towards you and chanting and, and shouting and screaming at you and they're threatening you, but if, if they've been put to flight, they're not doing that anymore. They've shut up with their insults and their attacks and they're just running for their lives. So those two definitely, uh, those two uses of the Hebrew verb, and the Hebrew verbs can be quite complicated, uh, certainly makes sense. You have the power of the advancement of the gospel uh, causing all of his enemies to be ashamed and sore vexed when he causes them to return and be ashamed suddenly as the end of Psalm 6 says. Another time that we can think of is when the Lord returns and it says, Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. As the gospel advance has become so, so great that Christ himself returns. Interestingly, Christ takes that truth that we read here in verse 2 and he applies it, um, or it is applied to him, what we might call Palm Sunday. So the Lord has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple uh, the first day of the week. Again, another foretaste, a, a, a prediction of the change of day. So he goes into the temple on the Lord's day, the first, <laughs> the first day of the week, and he clears it for a second time in his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry, and this would be, this is called the Passion Week, the week of his sufferings. But this is not suffering at all on the first day of the week. He goes in, he's triumphant, uh, and he's, he's cleansed the temple, and, and he's still in the temple, or he's still in Jerusalem, and, and we have the critics against him. But listen to what he says. It is Christ that opens up Psalm Eight. Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were so displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? Indeed, these children may have been a little bit older than the babes and sucklings, but as I said, that can be pointing to children of seven or even older. But that's not the point. The truth remains that 
the children of the covenant received strength and boldness in front of these religious leaders who clearly did not like this man. And, And maybe we could say that they received something of the Spirit of God to boldly glorify him even, even rejoicing and singing before him, Hosanna to the son of David. They should have been rejoicing as well, these men, but they were so displeased at Christ receiving praise that was due to him. So there was part of, uh, sort of changed the order. So his, his works is what I want to look at now. We've seen his people, what about his works? Well, very briefly then, as he's looking into the night sky and he sees all the glories of God, and no doubt it is night because that's when you can see it very clearly. He can see the stars and the planets, the other heavenly bodies and the, and the, 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 the vague or the bright smudges of this, that and the other, uh, that he would look up and, and just consider what, what, this, what this intense uh, uh, size of this, of this firmament was as much as they would necessarily understand in those times. But he thinks... This Lord, who is our Lord, who has an excellent name in all the earth, all of these he's created. You can see the magnitude of it. You can see the the expanse of it all without having to know things that were later on figured out by science, light years and and the great distance between them. You don't need all that. You just need to go out on the night uh, when the the stars are are, are very clear. There's little light pollution and you can just see it. It it, it will move the hardest atheistic heart uh, to at least glorify the creation. But of course they wouldn't want to glorify the creator. But but we have that, uh, that truth How excellent do these heavenly glories shine down upon the earth as we considered his creative power on earth. And we could even say this, that in many ways David is speechless when he considers uh, the the heavens and the work of thy fingers and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Because he only says, well not only says, but he says, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name. It's almost, it's almost as if he's speechless, not even to continue on. And again, he, he ends the psalm with that self-same phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Having, having spanned the heavens, but there's a reason why he comes back to the same conclusion in verse 9, which we'll come to uh, very, uh, very shortly. So we've seen uh, God's glorious reputation as creator, we could even add a sustainer, uh, the glories that he has. And for those that might not just look outside, but when even when you, instead of looking at the macrocosm, we could say, but if you look at the microcosm, and you're looking at the human body, and you're looking at the cells, and if you go in, 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 into the structures within the cells, and, and, and how all of that is put together, you know, and you realize quickly that when you were 12 and they told you it was a blob of jelly with a black dot in the middle, you realize, well, the human cell or any cell is nowhere near as basic and simple like that. This is, this is, not, some, this is not some frog spawn. Uh, and even the frog spawn, of course, would be highly complicated when you're looking deep and down and see the glories of it. Of course, they couldn't. They couldn't come down to that level and, and look at the glories of it. But even going a step further and considering the, the molecules and the atoms themselves and, and how an atom is made up, and you're going down and down, and in some ways it seems as though you'll never find the end as they keep on finding uh, the, these subatomic particles. 
Now, I know that's not necessarily absolutely fixed science and there are different views upon these, these matters, but it just seems to be so ordered and so complex that it, even the mac microcosm continues to give glory to God as well as the macrocosm we see above us. But God's glorious reputation as creator is now brought into contrast in verse 5 with God's excellent mercy toward man. I'm starting to get a feeling that we might run over. I might have to make a two-parter out of this. But I think we'll try, we'll try. God's excellent mercy towards man is brought now in from verse 5 onwards, from verse 4, I beg your pardon. Because he says all of this, verse 4 is not a new sentence. And um, when I was reading Calvin about this, uh, he was saying that there are some that would try to make this a, sen a, a new sentence, and he says they're wrong. He says it does not flow if it becomes a new sentence, and we see that our authorised version translators were on Calvin's side um, because they've just put a semicolon. In other words, he's building all this. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, it's clearly not the end of the sentence. What is man? And this is, this is the first thing we see when we consider God's excellent mercy towards God, uh, towards man. As he who created the great and glorious universe and is mighty in sustaining it, in sustaining you and me, in sustaining everything, is also, considering the, 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 the vastness of space and everything that's there, the glory and the beauty and the power, and even thinking of the sun and even thinking of coming closer to the earth, the aurora borealis and, 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 and storms and tornadoes and, and the, 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 the whole sky can go grey and then green and, and thunder and lightning and, and so many things that we can see around us. And he who causes all that, created all that, controls all of that, is also personally interested in every girl, boy, woman and man. This astounds the psalmist that this is so. And many people can have this understanding. They, they can come up to verse 3 with the psalmist and say, yes, as a, as a theist, as somebody who appreciates the, that there must be a man up there, to use a very uh, common, um, but, but, but not, uh, not a very complimentary term. Or say there is, there must be a God, but it's a very distant God. It's the, the deist's God, the, the, the theist's God. It's not the, it's not the God of the Scriptures. It's not the God of the Scriptures who, did all, did, who, who, who created all things in day one, two, three, four, five, and, the, and then the first part of day six, and on the latter day part of day six, also created man and woman, and is still personally interested in the sons and daughters of Adam. Seems unbelievable. That, 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 that an infinite God creating a universe that we know today would be classified by the scientist as almost infinite just because it's just too big for us to even measure. Not only would he be interested in this ball of rock and water that we have here, but also these little specks of dust and ash that are called human beings, you and me, absolutely interested in their lives, so much so that he knows every sin. And he knows every problem. And he knows every desire, and therefore he also knows every wicked desire. Desiring to be personally involved 
with all these persons, but specifically it is so for two reasons. Firstly, because man is made in God's image. God has a personal investment, shall we say, in the human race. And of course, we, we, we're not going to be as, as crazy as Benny Hinn. Um, I don't want to be anywhere near Benny Hinn. Um, but in the sense of, Benny Hinn doesn't understand what the image of God is. He says the image of God is that God himself has a body, soul, and spirit, which is very Mormon-like. Uh, body, soul, and spirit, and each of those body, souls, and spirits is a trinity. I mean, it just shows you, if, if you just listen to his understanding of, of, the, the, uh, of the makeup of man and then his, his understanding of trinity, then you, you can see how far his gospel is from the truth. So it's not a physical image. We are not made in God's image because God has an eyes and a nose and ears and is so high and so wide and, and, and whatever. No, no. We are made in God's image. It's not a physical image. It is a, we can say it's a moral image. It's a spiritual image. And those images, I've, 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 I've said them in the past. I'll just quickly say it's a righteous image. It's a relational image. And this separates us from the animals as well, by the way. So a righteous image, a relational image, a reasoning image, a religious image in the sense of true holiness, not, as, not in the sense of man-made heathen, heathendom. And it is a ruling image. You can tell it, I worked hard on this to get the R's. But that's what it is. It is especially these. A ruling image, and that's what he examines for us today. Having dominion over the creatures, the Lord said in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, that is man. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. That's dominion. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. It is this aspect of the image of God that he speaks of here. But we can say he takes a part for the whole. So in this particular image of God, this, this dominion that we see that's given to mankind, and therefore we have every right to fish for food. We have every right uh, to do uh, to um, slaughter an animal for food and for clothing and for use the bones for glue and, and whatever else we, we, we would need to uh, make use of them for and, and we may after after according to the lord lord 's own word after uh, the flood of Noah and when the Lord made the new covenant uh, a covenant with Noah but of course, the biblical understanding of dominion is, is not as the world might understand it when it, when it, when it is a, a human, a sinful human dominion is often wicked, it's merciless, it's a destructive tyranny. And we've, we've seen that, if you know anything of history, and even if you know anything of very, very recent history, you, you can see that even today in the world, uh, different governments and regimes of different stripes and colors and religions, again, uh, with, with, with tyranny. But this is not the dominion of the Scriptures. The dominion of the Scriptures is, is it's to be an echo of God's rule. Of, of a ruling for man is, is to rule God's creation in the fear of the Lord with wisdom and mercy. But man's fall into sin has terribly marred and scarred the image of God 
in man and so much so that before the flood uh, we saw that uh, he said this about man this is the spirit's own witness in Genesis 6 and verse 5 and God saw the wickedness of man was great uh, that, the, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Genesis 9, if I'm correct, yeah, Genesis 9 uh, also confirms after the flood, after all the wicked, the millions of wicked people were washed off the face of the earth and we had this family, this family of eight believers and yet, what do we? Well, we trust that we believe his covenant family. Certainly, certainly, Noah was was a righteous man before God. Uh, that we have this family, and yet, what do, what do we see? That, that even their offspring very quickly were corrupt. Even no one of Noah's child, children uh, did that which was wicked. And so, so it's in man. That's what he said. It's even from his from his youth onwards that man is wicked. So we see there. Uh, so. The image of God has been marred, it's been twisted, it's been scarred. Um, man's, man being made in God's image, but having destroyed that image. But what we also see when we consider uh, these verses before us, when we can take all of those verses that we've read all the way up to verse 8, to be description of God's mercy and kindness towards man, having, having given man this dominion, having given him all the blessings in, in creation, and not just on the sixth day, but even after the fall, the Lord still gives these blessings of creation even, even to us. Yes, there is sin and miseries entered into the world, uh, the lions and the tigers no longer, and the bears no longer do what we tell them. Um, in that way, uh, you know, the, the, the creation is, is, is corrupted in that way because of sin. But what we also see is, even in these verses, that God taking on man's image. And we understand that in the Incarnation. The Son of God humbling himself to become the Son of Man. And this is really the point of the, of the title that I gave. The Son of God humbling himself to become man. Why? In order to save man, because man is now... Uh, the image of God is scarred, it is, it, is, it is twisted. He is in sin and he will die in his sin unless God comes to save him from that sin. So they may have dominion over the creatures, but he does not have dominion over his sin. He may have dominion over the fish, but he does have dominion over his will that is dead in trespasses and sins as regarding God. I keep on hearing this expression, free will, free will. Nobody has free will. Everybody's will is bound by circumstance and providence. But the Bible does not talk about us having a free will. But the Bible says that our, our will is bound it's bound because we are dead in trespasses and sins. And if you're dead in trespasses and sins, there's nothing you can do. Lazarus wasn't knocking on the inside of the tomb door. Saying, Is the Lord there yet? I'm ready to be woken from the dead. That's not what he said. That's not what he did. He couldn't. He was a corpse. But it pleased the Lord to come and call that dead corpse out of the dead. And the whole of humanity is like this. And so the Lord, the Son of God, humbles himself and takes on human form. And we say, you get with that word here that it says in verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
It's not just a description of mankind in general, yes, but it is also a title of, of the Christ. The Son of God who is the Son of Man. And we could translate that, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the Son of Man that thou visitest him, that is, man at the beginning of the sentence. But God, the Son of God, humbles himself to save mankind from their sin, from their death state, from God's righteous wrath over sin. And so he was sent to be born as one of us, uh, to live in our place, that sinful life, to die in our place, that sacrificial death, to rise from the dead, to confirm his payment for sin, to ascend to heaven to rule all things. Again, that brings back this understanding of dominion. All things, all things, thou madest, him to have, thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That, that speaks more of Christ than it does of man. So he's ascended to heaven to rule all things as the victorious God-man, as the excellent and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Hebrew Christians, he opens up Psalm 8 and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just some preacher's fancy, this is, this is the truth of the Scriptures. Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 7, But one, that is David, in a certain place, that is Psalm 8, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. And that's a very good description of the world now. Post the resurrection, uh, post the ascension into heaven and his heavenly session, as we call it, is sitting on the throne and ruling all things. Indeed, we do not yet see all things under him, but we are, by God's grace. Much of the world is under uh, the, the control. All the world is under the control, but we do not see all of the workings of Christ and the, the Great Commission is still going forth. But we see, sorry, then verse 9 continues in Hebrews 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That does not mean that Christ was imperfect. It means it, he, would he would bring to completion, absolute completion, his work as the captain, the chief, the beginning, the author, as, as Hebrews uses it in Hebrews 11, the same Greek word, the author of their salvation. He will bring everything to completion. So he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, perfection, unto the day of Christ. And this is what he's speaking of. 
and and therefore we will yet see all things under his feet just to complete the thought of Paul there and so we see then yeah as we as we look at this we see that the need of man made in the image of God but the glories then of the son of God having been incarnated into the image of man what, what, what Adam destroyed and what we by our nature continue to destroy the second Adam the last Adam has come to make perfect through sufferings the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatever passeth through the paths of the seas everything that's in there there are details that we haven't looked at but we finish with verse 9 then because of the glories of the gospel because of the son of God as our redeemer it's been revealed and prophesied to us in this psalm. It is, is only fitting that we have now, that then this, 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 this gospel aspect. We, we can understand God as creator, but now we have God as redeemer. And then he says again, O Lord, our Lord, Jehovah, our master, how excellent is thy name in all the earth as the Lord is now in the earth and throughout the earth, is gathering a people to himself because of the work of the cross and the sending forth of preachers to preach Christ and him crucified, that his name will be more and more excellent in the, in the earth until the great day when it is fully revealed, when all of God's enemies are removed and when heaven and earth become one and that God's people will fill the earth and the glories of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen. May God bless his word to you this evening. Let us pray. We thank thee, Lord, for thy word. We thank thee for Psalm 8. We thank thee for Christ revealed in it. We thank thee, Lord, for our great need of him. And Lord, we thank thee that thou art our creator. But oh, how we have rebelled against thee. And yet, Lord, thou hast given us the Son of Man who has visited us in our flesh thou didst prepare a body for him and he had that reasonable that reasoning soul a full body and soul of man and we thank thee for him we thank thee Lord that, that he was humbled so that we would be drawn out of the pit of miry clay that we would one day be exalted as our spirits now are exalted in Jesus Christ being already exalted, already seated because of our union in Christ. And yet this one day that he will come and return for his people. And yet then we shall see all things under his glorious and shining feet as we think of Revelation chapter 1. Lord, bless thy word to us. Help us to look unto Jesus consider his glories and his goodness and that the pains and the sufferings the difficulties of this life are but short and if our sins are forgiven us that he, we will have an eternity with this glorious God-man saviour for father we pray in the, his name and pray for help in our praying amen